This is an official communication from the government of Sofistan. From the country that invented the Switch Side Visa. And where every restaurant's soup of the day is, convince me. You are listening to the Republic of Sofistan podcast. Citizens of the Republic around the world are committed to one common cause. Liberation. Liberating your mind and your voice from poor habits of underdeveloped rhetoric, debate, and argumentation. Got a comment for us? Email us at podcast at sofastand.com. I am the Minister of Education for the Republic of Sofistan, Dr. Steve Yano, and I invite you to join me to decolonize your mind and explore the practices of debate, rhetoric, and argumentation that will liberate your mind and voice and help you become a sophist. Anchor.fm slash Republic of Sophistan. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Salt Lake City. We're at the National Communication Association 2018 convention, and I am sitting here with Dr. Carly Woods from University of Maryland, who's just written a book called Debating Women, Gender Education and Spaces for Argument, 1835-1945. And we're going to be asking her a lot of questions about this book, which you should read. University of Michigan? Uh, Michigan State University Michigan Press. State University Press. There'll be a link on the website, sofstand.com. So you can go get one and read it if you're interested in debating and uh, getting some insight in the history of debate. And some, I think there's a lot of good stuff in here about what debate is for. Uh, go pick it up and read it. I think it's excellent. I read it. Uh, so thanks for coming and taking the time out of the convention to talk to me. I'm honored and to us, be here with you. All of us, all of us <laughs> listening. Thank you. So why did you decide to write this book? I guess is where I want to start. Like. What made you think about writing this book and, and choosing the particular examples that you picked? Yeah, well, those are two separate questions. Um, mm-hmm. it, you know, my reason for initially being interested in the topic is personal because I too was a debating woman. Uh, am a debating woman. I was a debater in high school and college, and I coached. Uh, we coached together at the University of Pittsburgh. We did. And, um, I found the activity to be incredibly empowering. Um, it rewarded me for my res- uh, for being you know, really into research, and it really did all of the things it was supposed to do in terms of helping me find my voice and whatnot. Um, but uh, there also were very few uh, women, especially at the highest echelons of the activity um, and coaching and judging at the time I was debating. And so I, I did a lot of soul-searching about that. And then when I was in graduate school, uh, learning about more about argumentation theory and debate, and then taking feminist and women's studies classes, um, I was noticing a lot of overlap and interesting themes, um, but they weren't necessarily talking to each other. So that's when I started to uh, learn more about archival research methods as well and start uh, to put this project together. Um, in terms of why I chose the cases, um, they, it evolved a lot over the years, but honestly, um, there isn't a 
um, there's not much consistency in terms of how these types of materials are preserved. Mm. Um, so, um, you know, my book uses evidence from all kinds of different different types of historical materials, letters, scrapbooks, minute books, um, event flyers. It was sort of a, it was a use all you can, you, you know, you can find situation. And so um, as the project really developed over the years, I was, uh, I made some decisions about what to study based on the materials that were available and the access that I had to them. Um, I also wanted to uh, include a uh, somewhat of a historical narrative, although again, one of my one of my points, uh, overarching points in the book, is that we have to look at each one of these debating societies as separate argument yeah. cultures. We can't actually generalize that much, even though we can, you know, point to um, some experiences that might be have been the same. Um, so, you know, it made sense sense to start with the origin story that had circulated that you know the first college women's debating society was founded at Oberlin College, um, but the decision to study the ladies at Edinburgh debating society um, was really based on the comprehensiveness of their minutes. They, mm-hmm. you know, they debated for 70 years and kept really comprehensive minutes, so that was a big um, draw for me. The third chapter on the international debate tour, um, it was mostly pre- predominantly media accounts um, that uh, allowed me to tell that story, um, and so that was accessible in a new way as more materials were digitized. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the final case study looks at Pitt and Penn State. Um, I went to Pitt, so I had access to those materials when I was there, and then um, a research grant uh, allowed me to go to Penn State uh, at this point. And again, the comprehensiveness of the materials really helped me to be able to tell the stories that I do in the book. Yeah, I wonder why certain things are preserved and certain things aren't. Like for the Edinburgh Women's Debating Society, they obviously felt what they were doing was really important. Mm-hmm. But these debate tours are obviously important as people go on them, but very little is preserved. Do you have a sense of why... Like with Edinburgh, you can say we're doing something important here, and they all agree. Mm-hmm. But these debate tours are very expensive. There's a lot of people involved, a lot of planning. Why isn't that stuff more preserved? It, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I think uh, it, it's a question that haunts all historians. Um, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. and and we do know a lot about how the things that are preserved are because of people in power or people with particular privileges and things like that. Um, sometimes it's an individual. So Penn State had a coach, uh, um, Clayton Shug, who mm-hmm. thought it was very important to very meticulously document um, all of the activities of the women's debate team there um, and then donate them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, you know, that, that was a per- fairly clear story. Um, but uh, again, here, I think it just the the value of these materials has to be articulated and argued mm-hmm. and yeah. um, you know people have to see it as valuable and so I hope one contribution of the book is that I am seeing these things as valuable and trying to communicate to others that um, we should value them as well um, the, the 1928 debate tour it's an interesting question why didn't you know why wasn't there more documentation of that beyond the newspaper accounts well we still have international debate tours today the debaters blog sometimes, yeah. um, or there are some attempts to videotape them and, th- and whatnot, but yep. I definitely had some meta moments when I was writing this book about, um, you know, how much of debate, hist- ongoing debate history is just kind of lost. Right, um, yeah, that's right. Uh, so uh, I think, again, it just takes someone saying this is important and, uh, you know, it's not always the arguments in the debate in fact uh, I think it rarely is uh, the arguments in the debate that are most important but um, that 
uh, we can, as scholars and as humans, start to take this activity more seriously, its sociological aspects, its relational aspects, um, and it, again, its importance to the discipline of communication and to history more generally. Yeah, yeah it is fascinating, because when you find these fragmented sources, everybody clearly thinks it's important. And they talk about how important it is. Yeah. And then there's nothing but that. Yeah. This it is feels, really important. It document. feels yeah. like the most important yeah. thing when you're doing it, yeah. too. Yeah. And yeah. This shredded yeah. letter says, wow, these debates are really important. And that's it. There's no, like, record of how people felt about the debate or, I mean, Edinburgh is kind of like the outlier yes. in that sense. You're right. Yeah. And I think, yeah, the, the hopefully one thing that the book can contribute is to suggest that, you know, this is an important part of of those various histories I was talking about, mm-hmm. you know, this is uh, this should be part of the conversation when we talk about the history of education right. and the history yeah. of co-education. Mm-hmm. When we talk about the discipline of speech communication, this should be part of the conversation, yeah. uh, even if these women weren't particularly playing the roles that we typically mm-hmm. look to when we tell those stories. Yeah. So, moving on to some of the things you said in the book that I want you to kind of expand on. So, there's this idea that the men's debating society at University College London wanted to have women in, but they weren't sure if women were students. Mm-hmm. And that quote uh, in chapter two made me think that I don't think it's a shock to anyone listening that access to debate would be restricted to women. But I, maybe you could reflect on why it was restricted. Was it because debating is inappropriate for women because of their capabilities, or was it afraid that, or were people afraid it was going to transform in women into something? not woman Mm -hmm. was it debates transformative properties which I think a lot of people listening would say well debate changed me or debate has changed Mm -hmm. the way I think and is that unseemly or because I wasn't sure which one was motivating these questions Mm -hmm. or is it that this is just inappropriate for women and might just be something that wastes time when they could be learning how to sew or how to cook or something like that I think in some ways all of the above okay Um, but, uh, you know, I, it certainly was a violation of gender decorum mm-hmm. in some of the cases that I'm looking right, at. Right, so, right, like, right. A, at Oberlin, um, the sharing of the space, uh, uh, the rhetorical space, uh, was the problem. And the idea that women would engage in this way with mm-hmm. men was seen as a threat. Um, and uh, in the case, uh, in, in the, the Scottish case, when we look at the uh, Ladies Edinburgh Debating Society, you know, they weren't even admitted to Scottish universities at the time the debating society was was founded. Um, but, you know, your question also suggests that the transformative aspects of debate, um, we can think th- through, you know, what does debate prepare you for? Yeah. And think about the variety of careers that people mm. weren't thinking that women would inhabit yeah. at that yeah. time. That could certainly be part of it. Um, but I think there is the specter of, you know, um, debate can change lives, debate can empower in various ways that could be very threatening. And so I trace the metaphor of travel through the yes. book. I really and, liked that, by the way. Oh, thank you. The mobile debate society. Yeah. I don't know if that's your words, but that's what comes to mind. Yeah. The mobile debate culture. Yeah. So so women describing their own experiences as being moved or moving mm-hmm. with debate. Um, and so, yeah, I think that... That, that that figurative language suggests why there could be some why that might be disruptive or threatening. Sure, yeah. Kind of as a follow up to that, there's a lot of anxiety you communicate in the book between whether we're a writing organization or a speaking mm-hmm. organization, yes. and that anxiety is oddly or it's a surprise to me how much it was perpetuated by the members of the women's debating clubs. Like, are we a writing crew or are we a arguing crew? Yeah. And they fought about this, and it seemed like it was quite serious. So, why do you think that was the battle line? 
what is it about the embodied practice of writing and speaking that I mean it feels to me like what's underlying this is we don't want our women to become monstrous <clears throat> we want our women to remain deficient for lack of a better word because the, the reason they can't study debate is they're deficient their voices are squeaky yeah. their mannerisms are not strong enough um, so we want them to remain deficient and if they became good at this they'd be, they'd be monsters yeah. that's the way I thought of it yeah. So this writing speech, why is that the battle line, you think? Yeah, it's a great question. I think um, it's probably best answered at Oberlin College through the case of Lucy Stone, who, yeah, of course, yeah. went on to what be... What a fantastic yeah, figure. Yeah, yeah, yeah I mean, really just cool. an incredible abolitionist and suffragist. Yeah. And, just, right. uh, um, and she, of course, was breaking the rules all the time at oh, yeah. Oberlin oh, in yeah, various yeah, yeah, yeah. ways. Um, she but, didn't really seem to care about the rules of the college. Yeah. She was yeah. there for something else. <laughs> Um, but yeah, she, so um, at, at Oberlin, women could uh, write, you know, write essays, and, yeah. and then even at the graduation ceremony, had to have a professor read them if they were enrolled in the four-year uh, degree that men were also enrolled in. And um, so, yeah, I think that's just one of those things that, yeah, to us today seems incredibly arbitrary. Right. You can write this essay, sure. uh, you can read but not speak your essay, that mm-hmm. sort of thing. And, right. um, and but I think that that was, you know, a lot of the ways that women lives are disciplined don't make a lot of sense boy that's uh, true <laughs> if there's one true thing you highlight put that on the highlight reel that's a good one it's yeah. absolutely true yeah so i'm um, in, in the case of the oberlin ladies literary society or the lls um you know I, my i surmise that um and and along with some of the um alumni that have worked alumna who have worked on this uh that uh that that was their way of, of still appearing like they were in line with the rules of the ladies board. That's right. You know, we're yeah. writing these essays, so it's a we're strategy. reading them. Yep, but mm-hmm. uh, of course, it's not debate. Yeah, uh, right, right, right. You know, right, we right. wouldn't do that. We know that that's yeah. not uh, that's not. Um, and that's a strategy a lot of times today to have debate in situations where debate is seen as like a dirty word or a bad. Yeah, it's like nowhere right. discussion club or dialogue or something like that. Yeah. You're right. It's Burkean debunking. Yes. But in a positive sense. <laughs> it's like constructive Burkean debunking, which I really yeah. like that. Yeah, and I, th- I thought it was really interesting that even with the Oberlin alumna who were uh, celebrating the history, that they went back and retrospectively said, yes. oh, these women probably wanted to put debate uh-huh. in their description of what the club was about, but but yeah. decided that that was they not a They made a, a politically idea. wise choice yeah. to keep the club yeah. going. So even the memory reflects that idea. Right, right, right. So... Um, yeah, I wanted to ask something else about that uh, writing thing, but I forget what it is now. So it'll come back to me. It'll come back to me. So um, well, let's see. So one of the things that I notice about the debate clubs or these clubs, whatever they call themselves, is that obviously they were there to practice oratory, like for men and for women. So, but what kind of like they're very layered experiences, and I think you do a good job of communicating how layered those pedagogical experiences are. So what kind of pedagogical experiences do you think men's debate societies offered that women didn't get? But then more interestingly, what are the women getting that the men didn't get from the, from the layered pedagogical? Um, because like earlier you mentioned, you know, the kind of life you have debate, the skills argument. We're very mm-hmm. familiar with debate being sort of reduced to the skill as a way of selling it mm-hmm. to get funding or things like that. Mm-hmm. Great. But then there's this much richer payoff. But uh, it's, it's somewhat obvious to say, well, the men got these things and women didn't. But maybe women got something that men didn't because they were on the, they were subversive in a way. They were outside of the rules. Yeah, yeah. I, like, I, the, I, like going off to the woods. Right. Like some kind of witchcraft ceremony. <laughs> like druids or something. 
Like yeah. the, the, we're gonna have our debate society in the woods. Now they're very outside of the college geographically, but also in a sense of legality, in a sense of rules and discourse mm-hmm. as a as a um, power thing. So what do you think? Yeah. So um, I have learned from those that have studied men's debating societies very closely. Um, I'm thinking here of Angela Ray's work and um, yeah. the historian Carolyn Eastman. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I don't think that they were always so different, um, but oftentimes there was these sort of aspirational aspects of the uh, men's debating societies where, you know, we need to participate in this, uh, learn how to um, argue, uh, and it will help us become better citizens and then um, help us in our careers, like sort of the more traditional narrative that we tend to hear. Um, I think women wanted to debate for those same reasons, um, but in these earlier case studies, they understood that they were going to, that there were going to be barriers. And mm-hmm. so um, that lent itself to some different possibilities. It lent itself to women coming together over the 70-year period in the um, the dining room of Sarah Mayer and these ongoing conversations where they could revisit the same topics or similar topics five, ten years apart. Right. right? I thought that was really uh, cool. And, yeah, yeah. And, and really the whole creation of that society was there because they were uh, they were excluded from university education and they wanted mm-hmm. to create that experience. Um, so what I tried to do in the book with each case study is to show another aspect beyond the reasoning, beyond the speaking, which of course are important, what can we say? And, you know, in Oberlin's case, it's claiming a legacy at the university and negotiating space. In Edinburgh, we look at uh, navigating uh, difference and intergenerational argument cultures. Mm -hmm. We talk about uh, intercultural argumentation and exchange in the um, third case study, and then finally, um, using debate as justification for citizenship in the last one. Yeah, very good. Yeah, you know, that's really, that's really a kind of a cool answer there's a lot to think about there so I'm always trying to think about the, the inverse of it so with the Edinburgh group um, they had kind of had a little bit of a precursor of a, of a disagreement that motivated a lot of the way American debating is structured which is convictionism and switch side and they kind of resolved this in an unusual way and I wonder if you think that they're like insights like gendered insights into how convictionism is read so we look to somebody like Teddy Roosevelt who's like early 20th century Mm -hmm. saying when I was in college I'm glad I didn't participate in debate because it didn't make me soft I still had my convictions Mm -hmm. and I could I mean he doesn't say it but it's mathematically there I'm a man I can be a man because I have my convictions I'm not I I didn't learn how to speak glibly on a number of subjects which is like it's kind of a I didn't think of it as gendered before I read your book Mm -hmm. and I think it was highly gendered because dilettantism, being able to kind of hold the conversation on a number of different things, mm-hmm. which is what switch side might provide, might be very nice for the lady of the house to be able to do in the parlor mm. when entertaining important husbands, friends, or something like that. Mm. So I wonder if you thought about uh, the convictionism. This is a new level to the convictionism switch side debate, is that yeah. it's a highly it's highly infected and in an invisible way of gendered assumptions about behavior. Yeah. And the Edinburgh ladies seem to be dealing with that, with that question of like, well, what if somebody kind of speaks glibly, or what if somebody goes too far on a position. Yeah, yeah. And they really, um, in Edinburgh, they really... They had a lot of meta-debates. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. Uh, They had a lot of Debates about debates. Yeah, debates about debates. What debate Um, should be, normative claims about what debate should be. Should we be standing or sitting when we speak? Uh, Yeah, and All of that was really cool. Yeah, they uh, they had this sense that um, you had to uh, articulate your your convictions, Mm -hmm. um, uh, but uh, that if you went too far, you were going to be called out on it, right? Right. Um, and I think that idea, um, yeah, it, I think it 
could be seen as deeply gendered. I'm going to have to think a little bit more about uh, mm. about that with that particular group because one of the purposes of, of studying such a diverse group and such a large number in the Ladies Edinburgh Debating Society is to say some of those women did, they were not all housewives, right? They weren't right. all just staying in the parlor. Sure. Um, uh, even though some of them were uh, were barred from going to university at the beginning of the society, they went on to uh, be uh, doctors, and they went yeah. on, you know, they went they on to, to these incredible, cool yeah, yeah, incredible careers. So I don't know if I could generalize about, you know, all of them were thinking, oh, I want to be able to hold a conversation, right. but I think they all recognized how important it was to be engaged in the conversation of the day, be it political, economic, and uh, and sociological and literary and um, that's just why I find so much richness in that case study because that they disagreed on many things yep. they came from uh, many different backgrounds mm-hmm. but they all agreed that that, that argumentation and debate and being able to to um, engage in those conversations was incredibly important. Yeah, I think that they're very. I think most. I mean, I'm just going to talk generally here. I don't really have the research to back it up, but it seems like from some examples you can say women are very aware of how they're supposed to behave, how they expect to behave, and then what how they what they're interested in what they want to do, and how to perform that, mm-hmm. how to negotiate that performance, which might be something that these debating societies help them. It was a part of that that negotiating process. Yeah, that's not as a type of training for that because they seem really intelligent. And they're aware mm-hmm. that they can't go and do these things, and they're like, okay, whatever. I can still do these things and communicate them in other ways. Yeah, that's so you think about like um, I forget the book, but about um, fainting as a political tactic. Mm. There's a there's a short book about what is that book called? I can see the cover in my head, but I don't remember. But it, it's the idea that like when a woman of the house would the men would be debating something and the side that she wanted to win was losing she would become faint and then the men would all scramble to take her to the fainting couch get the salts and are you okay my dear and all that and it would derail the debate (laughs) now if that's not an argumentative intervention or performative argument i don't know what is no kidding uh, I'll have to look that up. I'll put the site on the podcast notes. I wish my memory was a little better. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yes, yeah. these w- these women were incredibly aware of yeah. um, of what they were navigating in terms of the gender sure. restrictions and barriers of the time. Um, sometimes I wish there was a little bit more to the historical record, even in mm-hmm. the case of, of Ladies Edinburgh Debating Society, where we, where we have these really comprehensive minutes, because right. what you record when it comes to uh, the question of the day and even the arguments in the debate that they summarize there um, don't always give us insight into you know how um, how explicit are they being um, right, right, or right, you know right, are right. they doing this sarcastically yeah. or you yeah. know is it I mean I still wish I was a, a fly on the wall in all of these of argumentative spaces you wish you were the mahogany table <laughs> yes I wish I was yeah. the mahogany table they even had the mahogany table speak in the one that one uh, minute that you recorded, I think that's very clever and very cool. Yeah, this was the yeah. ma- mahogany table that was uh, the dining room table that was at the at Sarah Mara's house that they yeah. gathered around to debate over these mm-hmm. seventy years. Yeah, <laughs> it's really cool. It kind of spoke to like, in a weird way, I started thinking about post-human agency and how they were predictive of that in a weird way. Yeah, well, and we might uh, think about all sorts of other objects uh, related to argumentation and debate, the podium and the um, and the gavel. That's right. And, yeah. <laughs> These things take on qualities of agency or permissibility. They're also um, sources of power and authority. Mm-hmm. You know, like the conch from, uh, you know, from, uh, you know, I have the conch from uh, uh, that great book that I can't remember. Gosh, this is going to be a terrible episode. I can't remember anything. <laughs> I'm, like, so, like, worn out from the conference. <laughs> it's okay. So, um... Lord of the Flies, obviously. (laughs) These objects that are permeating with it. So anyway, so do you think there's anything particular about these 
um, women's societies that made them uniquely subversive in certain ways, or do you think that they're representative of general sorts of societies that people would form, men and women, that would try to challenge um, or do things kind of on the side, like not, you know, there's no like formal top-down um, education in this in the curriculum, but these societies are expected to be formed and had and so on, like clubs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you mentioned the London working debate societies that populated London in the 18th century and on, and I just wonder if there's anything you would argue is particularly subversive about the women's debating societies that you studied that would set them apart from their contemporaries in terms of clubs. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, um, I think when I tell people that I have done this history, a lot of people are interested in the topics that they explored. And that, of course, is very interesting. But I'm not sure that that is so different from what many other societies were talking about at that time. Um, Or that's something that I expected to be a major focus of the book that ended up not being as big of a focus as it otherwise might have been. I think each one of these cases show a debating society formed and sustained to meet a particular challenge. Mm, You know, mm -hmm. so at Oberlin, it was women could attend the college and could get degrees, but they couldn't debate in the classroom, right? Right. And so what do they do? They go and found a secret debating society in the woods. I love that. Uh, That should be a movie. (laughs) Yeah, I know. I mean, and that's why that the fact that that story is in such wide circulation, comparative to other debate stories, um, was what uh, really intrigued me. I didn't Um, know that story before I read your book. Oh, really? Yeah, I've never encountered that before. But it's so good. You know, they're they're filming that movie about the uh, Bard College Prison Debate Initiative Mm. in Harvard. They're making that movie right now. Uh, They should, you know. Ken Burns should make that movie too. Yeah, well, we've got the great debaters. We've Maybe got, a woman yeah, director too. Yeah, with, yeah, I think cinematic, cinematic uh, gold right there. Yeah, because <laughs> like these, you know, what's funny is like debate doesn't often come up in the biographies of these people mm. who we could say debate had some kind of correlation with where they ended up. Yeah. Maybe it's not causal. Maybe they did debate because they were already awesome. and they were attracted to it that way I've never been able to solve that in my mind yeah and I think that's I was trying to reconcile studying the great people the great figures um, who happened to debate um, Mm. and and also study those people that you know we've never heard their names right because maybe they didn't go on to do something great but they participated in debate for you know four years or one year or whatever and um, you know it was I hope meaningful I think meaningful for them for Mm. that moment yeah Um, so the the book includes some names that that um, that listeners may know and many that they probably won't mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and the same thing with um, those that might be interested in it um, through the study of, of communication figures like Marie Hockmuth Nichols yeah um, right who uh, who debated a pit so yeah no that's an excellent point I really think that's good um, yeah it seemed like I'll, I'll ask you this question because think about this in terms of a contribution to argument or the history of argument, aside from debate and debate clubs and debating, think of that as a separate thing. Um, I wonder if you would think of these people, because this book reminded me a lot of the film Hidden Figures, the essentialness of these minority women or subjugated people to creating this great thing. And so I thought maybe a subtitle might be Hidden Figures of Argument. These women are hidden figures in the generation of argument. And I wonder if you think that they would, do you see them as creators of a knowledge base or creators of knowledge through argument or are they masters of a set of information that they wouldn't have access to otherwise I know it's kind of a false binary yeah. and you could say well both yeah, yeah. but I wonder how you would see it but I wonder how they would they perceive themselves as creators of knowledge or would they see themselves as being able to access the knowledge as well as any man could or access the knowledge in the way that a 
professional, college-educated person. Mm-hmm. What would they say and what would you say? Yeah, certainly. I, I, I think that um, I, a lot of this is about access, mm-hmm. you know, um, mm-hmm. in each case, even though... To you power. Know, a- access, to pa- a- access to education, yeah. access to power, access to ideas, access yeah. to research. Yeah. Um, and so I certainly think that, that, is, that mastery is part of it. Um, but just like anybody, I think, who has been inspired by debate participation can attest to, it also, uh, yeah, you also come to see yourself as someone who can create knowledge or can, who can do research or do reading mm-hmm. and start to put things together in innovative ways. Um, and so, um, yeah, I'd really like to, to think about them in that way as well. And I think... Um, Edinburgh again. I keep going back to that example, but again, the, uh, it's a rich, we've, we've got I mean, the the best information about what the types of arguments that are made in the debates yep. there, um, and I think there, uh, you know, sometimes those debates developed in ways that I would have never anticipated. Mm-hmm. And one of the real challenges for me in doing this type of research and doing, you know, over the period of 1835 to 1945, is that I had to know a little bit about every resolution. To, to, yeah. to know just that's the to be age able of to revolutions con- yeah. that's the European news and all like, <laughs> yeah you know. yeah just to be able to contextualize it a yeah. little bit in the um, in the book and so um, to think about what they lived through and the way that they were able to connect ideas and again return to res- uh, various questions over time um, I think is a really uh, we can think about through the lens of invention yeah. as well um, yeah yeah, I think yeah, that's really cool. I'm glad you brought up like putting together because I thought about collage as a way to mm-hmm. to empower people who might be outside of the system or not have access, is they can collage through practice. And I see this. I see the Ladies Edinburgh Debate Society as a, a society focused on practicing uh, appeals to universal audience mm-hmm. in the Perlman Ulbricht typical oh, okay. way, because they don't really have a way of accessing that in the way a, a man would mm-hmm. with full access to curriculum. So they're trying to do it to the best of their ability and, and, and trying to do that. So their universal audience would not be ours. And so when you read these arguments, you're like, oh, I don't know what they're talking about. You have to go look at the history and what's being what's circulating. Yeah. And they're trying to figure out, okay, what would the best audience of our time think about these things? Yeah. So it's kind of a cool way to practice. That was what I yeah. thought about it. Yeah. I'm, well, and then, I'm obsessed with Perlman over Yeah, no, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And Because it's a theoretical construction of like judgment of yourself. And so they're clearly not speaking to one another. That struck me. They're not trying to persuade one another. They're trying to persuade this sort of imaginary society. Yeah. So you read so it as the universal they, audience. They thought of themselves as in it together. Yes. Uh, and, and we, you know, iron, you know, iron sharpens iron. Yeah. That's yeah. the way I read it. Well, I don't know if that's you know, how you read there it. There is actually some support for that because when the the debating society was re, uh, dissolved in 1935, mm-hmm. and then they published this commemorative volume, mm-hmm. and they said. Well, we don't really know if anybody, any further generations are going to be interested in this, but we hope that they are. And so that was a very self-conscious act. And of course, a lot of my evidence comes from that volume right, as well. Right, right. Um, but to, to, to imagine future generations, a future mm-hmm. audience. Um, and then, of course, they had the foresight to donate their papers. And I was able to access them at the there National Library of Scotland yeah. uh, many, many years later. Yeah. And Scottish debate is still is happening for all kinds of people. People they probably couldn't imagine access to. There's a lot going on over there. Yeah, so. yeah. So they were right. People are yeah, interested. Right. They are very much interested. So I want to talk about this very specific part of the book, the Pittsburgh policy, this weird yeah. document. And I think that like this also brings up this question about um, convictions' role in proper debate education and how it relates to women. Like, um, do you think they described it as truth seeking debate as a truth seeking exercise, but? Um, don't you think it might be more accurate to think of it as moral training? 
And then that might be a reason why women are not are to the side of the major practices of debate at the university because they don't necessarily need training to form moral opinions. Men will shield them or some kind of weird chivalrous... I mean, that's not necessarily what you say in the book. But the Pittsburgh policy struck me as like conviction is a lot deeper than um, truth-seeking. It's also like properly formed moral judgment is really what it kind of is about. That you would you would we would all have a universal way of looking at evidence. And I mean, it, it strikes me also like something like that could be written today because of the fear of post-fact, alternative facts, the, the de-anchoring of, of a social um, consensus on facts. And this is like, okay, well, we want to prevent that from happening by saying you can make adequate moral judgment. Yeah. Which is like a weird thing that people panic about. I don't, I don't think post-fact is a problem. But uh, they might not either. Things like the Pittsburgh... But anyway, I had... Yeah, so um, it's interesting. So when we get to the University of Pittsburgh part of the book, it's yep. uh, it's 1928 to 1945. Mm-hmm. Um, men and women's debating societies both exist at the University of Pittsburgh and at Penn State University. Um, mm-hmm. At Pitt, they're overseen by Waylon Maxfield Parrish, um, and he is really the person who pushes the Pittsburgh policy, and then later Richard Murphy and Teresa Kahn, who is later Teresa Kahn Murphy, is yep. the uh, coach of the women's team. And um, so I saw it as, you know, that was an overarching policy for both the men and the women's teams. Oh, right. Um, Mm -hmm. However, I saw the way that people, uh, both in the Pitt and the Penn State team, were the the way that the coaches were talking about conviction and poise having gender dynamics. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting. uh, The coach at at Penn State, uh, Clayton Shug, says, well, you know, women need this kind of training because... Uh, they might go on to be teachers, and that's a really trying job where your nerves can be rattled, right? Uh, so that was a reason for developing poise right. through debate. Um, and I think and it's all in the body. It's all permeated through the body. So what you speak and what you hear in debate becomes embodied, becomes a part yeah. of who you are, and then it becomes problematic. Right, right. Yeah, so I do think that people were absolutely imagining different roles for yeah. women during this time, um, and that conviction might manifest differently in the same way that, you know, I saw I saw some evidence of women using debate as evidence that they were citizens, you know, right. were, yeah, yeah, uh, you yeah, know yeah, as yeah. evidence of citizenship right. and, and in, in yeah. making that argument and appeal to the institution, um, but again, also being very self-aware that... This is a this is a particular type of gendered citizenship, and the way that I'm going to participate, or the way, um, even if they didn't intend to fall well within those restrictions, um, that the way that they needed to articulate it uh, was within this, this very sort of safe, white, typically white and feminine right. conception yeah, yeah. of the term. Yeah. Do you think, as a follow up on that, let's talk a little bit about Clayton Shug. Yeah. He's, he's such an interesting figure. Yes. And he's very influential. And he was the Penn State women's debate coach. And he was there for a long time, right? Yes. Like half a century. Yes. Almost, right? Mm-hmm. So do you think Shug, Clayton Shug, or Professor Shug, I guess we should say, do you think he was a radical thinker about debate? Because some of the things he's saying, like your example of the teaching thing, I think would strike people as. At the minimum, highly innovative, mm-hmm. and at the maximum, to be like, that's a stretch. Yeah. I mean, do you think he's a radical? 
Yeah, I have I have some insight I bet on you this. Have, oh, you do? Okay, <laughs> I do. Um, it's, this part is not in the book, but um, it's in a separate um, chapter that I wrote for the Speech and Debate as Civic Education volume. Oh, yeah, that book is great. Um, pub, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah um, right. published through Penn State Press. Yep. And um, it was looking at a scrapbook um, that former debaters uh, had compiled for Shogun upon his retirement. Oh, and they had huh? women writing back in, reflecting on their experience on debate in the 1930s and 40s. And they were writing back in in the, in, um, at the height of the women's liberation movement. Mm-hmm. And so they were sort of funneling. When did he retire? Um, it was. The uh, 60s, maybe? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, yeah, I would have to look up the exact date. <laughs> you know your book um, better than me. But the interesting thing about them reflecting on their debate experience at that moment was that they were, uh, some of them even used the terminology of, you know, Suge was the real women's lib guy. Women's oh, liberation interesting, guy. Interesting. They alluded to his conservative politics, uh-huh. um, but in their memories of their debate experience, they were crediting him with, you know, you are the ones who secured our resources, you are the ones who advocated us, so we could participate in this really important, empowering activity that you know mm-hmm. it changed our lives in so many ways. And there's an incredible testimony about what they did with those um, that experience. And um, yeah, so they they were reframing their memory of Shug uh, in those terms. That's but you could tell there was a bit of uh, you know tongue in cheek oh, dabbing nice, going nice, on yeah. as well. It's almost ironic if he was uh, conservative. That it's almost ironic that what he did. Um, becomes read as a very non-conservative for the time empowerment, like women's lib. Uh, He might be horrified at that. But at at the same time, he's very comfortable with these radical positions about conviction for women, which it seems like the majority of debate instruction doesn't feel like... That's a very manly... From the late 19th century on to through the war, it seems like it's a very manly thing. That's like, you know, this idea of backbone as a way of engaging in public argument. Um... You don't have the backbone. He showed the president showed lack of backbone in the in the argument with Congress. You see that in late nineteenth century, early twentieth century media. Yeah. So it's this very masculine and also embodied. I mean, backbone also embodied in um, the body itself. So women are just written out. And so here comes Clayton Shug, and he's like, "But actually, well, actually, in this ironic mansplaining, <laughs> well, actually, women are going to be teachers, so they're going to shape these young these boys." And so they do need to be able to practice conviction if we see conviction not as truth-seeking, but as moral, uh, the capacity for, for formal moral judgment, which is the way I read it in your book. Yeah. So From the evidence, you it seemed like they're much more interested in like um, this sort of classical sense of, uh, you know, who are we as a society is defined by how we make these moral judgments. So a lot so of I, this I think we have to... No, we have to think about this... Uh, you know, if you think about this historically, um, during this period, um, women's debate is is certainly growing, yes. but not oh, everybody yeah. is convinced it's a good idea. Yeah. Um, and but the demand is there. That. The demand is there. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's unique that he both that he as a as a man faculty member uh, took the job to coach women's debate and stayed as long as he did. And I'm going to answer your question. Okay, great. Yeah, uh, sorry. Uh, I'm going to quote myself here. Uh, oh, he nice. stayed at Penn State until his retirement at the rank of full professor in 1971, having coached a total oh, of yeah. uh, 1,072 women over uh, over 40 years. That's amazing. So um, that's right at the that's second wave. That's the 
bra burning and the hippies yeah, and all that. Yeah, and one reviewer pointed out to me that women's the term women's lib is uh, you know is a derisive term as yes. well. Yeah. Um, so they they were probably taking his politics into consideration when they made that mm-hmm. comment. Um, and they're but, also quite witty and good with words. So yeah, yeah. And, it's so, be read and, and they were yeah. they were fetting him at his of retirement. Course, of course, ceremony. it's like a roast. We have to yeah, read it like that. Yeah. I mean, and I'm sure he got a kick out of it. Yeah, I'm sure he did too. Yeah. Um, the idea that he when he articulated why Penn State women's debate was important when he talked about teacher the role of teachers, yeah. he also said they may go on to be the they might may go on to the role of wives wives and mothers. And See, again, this is just such a powerful like such a clever argument. Yeah. Like, how do you respond to that? You just, you just you, I mean, there's no response. He's taking the, the, the conservative roles of women seriously. It's almost like over-identification. Yeah. Like, I'll yeah. defeat by over-identifying with where you think women should be restricted to these things. Okay, that means they actually need more powerful education than men. Yep, I think I think he was working all the angles. No, yeah, yeah, because the women's the women who wrote in at at his retirement were saying, "You empowered me. You took me seriously," and that was significant at that moment in my life when many people were not. And there are some stories that I talk about in the chapter of how you know the women's team was really not treated very well when it came to resources. Yeah, I want to talk. That's a great transition. I want to talk about Penn State men's coach Joseph Uh O'Brien. Um, did you find anything about his opinion of Clayton Shug or anything anything derogatory that he make it into the book? Ah. Any, any views of Joseph O'Brien where he was like, I just kind of wish this guy, I wish I was a better arguer than this guy. Because the resources <laughs> is, a, is a really important material point about women's debate and and actually kind of a clever strategy to say, well, we're in full support of you, we just don't have the money. Yeah, well, the... Sorry. The, yeah. Um, I, did, I don't think I found a lot about the interactions between Suge and O'Brien. Um, at that time, the resources were allocated based on the, um, the ratio of men and women students enrolled uh, in the overall university. Mm-hmm. So because there were fewer women, women got a, 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 a budget cut. And the moment where that becomes a big controversy is during the war when there are more women on campus in comparison because they're they're not fighting um, or, or, or some of them are right but not as many um, and the men's team comes to the women's team and says hey will you share some of your budget oh okay yeah and, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. Uh, so that's the moment where one of the debaters Jonah Huber really recognizes because uh, the, the sexism in, in the activity because she says the women's team was willing to do that but they weren't willing to say yeah we'll, we'll share our budget uh, more after the war Right uh, and so right. yeah, there's a really sort of heartbreaking anecdote about that in the mm-hmm. um, in the book. Gosh, that materiality haunts debate practices today, and it's a big reason why some people don't do it. Some people aren't affording it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and it's still it's still maybe might be kind of gendered still. I hate to say it, yeah. um, but uh, boy, it's just really interesting. That Penn State Pitt chapter is really interesting. Thank you. Really, really interesting to me. Um, so, <laughs> sorry, I, t- no, I okay. took the book from him. Yeah, I know. I have to look up my. So, um, I don't know. I guess I guess that we kind of need to wrap it up. Yeah, we're getting close to another conference event. But um, what would you say if you wanted people to get to understand one thing about this era of time? In women debating, what's one thing you hope people would understand or that your book would clarify mm-hmm. that you would hope would be a takeaway where when this question of, of appropriate gender roles in debate, I mean, this is a hot question because we have Me Too, we have Title IX, we have all these things happening which are, you know, necessary and good and horrible and terrifying all at once, 
What's one thing you think that when people start talking about the role of women and men in debate and generals in debate, you would hope that this era would clarify or maybe give us some uh, commonplaces? Yes, maybe. that's a great question. Um, you know, I the, the, the many much of the discrimination and the hardship and the barriers that the women from 1835 to 1945 uh, faced are still present with us today. Uh, you know, when women engage in debate, even the, uh, you know, political debates or public debates or, you know, more formal uh, debating competitions, um, more are participating for sure, uh, but they are still subject to, you know, uh, being told they're weak, that they don't belong, uh, having their appearance commented yeah. about more than their yeah. arguments. Like the Seattle, like the um, the debate in Arizona between the two women senators and about what dresses they wore and what jewelry they wore from a debate coach talking about that to the media. Like... You sure this era isn't over? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it, it haunts us in many ways. Yeah. And so in that way, you know, it's, uh, I, I, it does not offer an answer to those things. But it, mm-hmm. what it does do is it provides this history of uh, to show that women were always there and they were always dealing with this. Um, and I think this we can go back and we can learn lessons from that. Um, we can say, okay, well, these people were told they couldn't even go to university. What did they do? Mm-hmm. Um, well, these women were presented this way in the media when they traveled around the country. What did they do? Mm-hmm. You know, how did mm-hmm. they handle it? So yeah. I think I think it is uh, it's a it's a resource for us. Yeah, it's a rich invention and, resource. Oh, uh, yeah, I I totally agree. And, I think it's awesome. Um, I I think that um, I I really believe that uh, so that has larger implications if we think of the general ideas of uh, assumptions about gender and argumentation today in our society. Um, If people are listening who are uh, debaters, um, oftentimes when I was in the activity, there was this sort of history of debate that was told that maybe started in the 1980s or 90s and didn't stretch back uh, much earlier than that. And so I, as a debater, always assumed that women just weren't part of it um, Mm -hmm. before that um, or that, you know, they weren't a significant part. And so I'm really hoping that this um, will... uh, will be inspirational to some people and um, will inspire others to uh, not only to, to bring some of those lessons into the competition, but uh, to do additional resources, uh, research into other debating societies, um, other groups of people who aren't typically figured prominently when we tell debate history. Great. The book is Debating Women, Gender Education and Spaces for Argument, 1835-1945. Dr. Harley Woods, University of Maryland, Michigan State. Yes. University Press. I'll get it right this time. <laughs> uh, pick it up. Excellent book. There'll be a link to the press website uh, at sofastand.com. And thanks so much for spending like all this time at the conference. But it was really interesting to hear your opinion on these things. So. Thank you. Um, yeah, appreciate it. My so. pleasure. Thank you for listening. See you next week.